So hopefully you are in Philippians chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. Paul wrote four letters kind of in a row. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you're kind of still searching, it's in between Ephesians and Colossians. And you're looking for the big number three. And we'll start in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, And the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So it's clear as we kind of come into this text that as we read the opening chapters of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians was written while Paul was in prison, most likely in Rome. We find this imprisonment to be serious because he thinks it could be the end of his life. Paul links this suffering and his imprisonment with his ministry, claiming in chapter 1, verse 16, that he had been placed there for the defense of the gospel. And it is in the defense of the gospel that he writes now. You see, in Philippi, radical Jews were trying to wreck the work of the gospel. They were coming to newly converted believers and telling them, well, here's what you actually have to do to be saved. And if you can imagine them kind of pulling out this list and beginning with circumcision, they would walk through regulation after regulation and rule after rule of what they would need to do to actually be saved. As a result, the meaning of the gospel was masked and its advancement was being stifled in Philippi. And Paul would not have this because the gospel that saved him was not the gospel being put forth by these Judaizers. The gospel that saves is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. So Paul, in challenging these Judaizers, has some pretty harsh language. Look with me in verse 2. Paul calls them dogs and evildoers. This is actually the language that the Jews would have used to describe the Gentiles who were savage. They would have called them dogs. Paul is using this harsh language to challenge these individuals to reevaluate their standing before God. 
And in challenging these wayward believers, Paul begins his defense of the gospel and introduces the topic that we're going to discuss today. As Paul outlines his defense of the gospel and reflects on his own life and experience of the gospel, in verses 4 through 14, he paints a really clear picture of two lives. A life that is wasted in collecting hollow treasures and a life that counts for all of eternity because it has gained in Jesus Christ a treasure chest of holy joy. Today, I want us to see in this text the futility of worthlessness, and deception of worldly gain, and how the defeat of sin and the spread of the gospel are fueled as Jesus increasingly becomes our all-surpassing worth. You ready? Let's hop in. Verse 4. Paul begins his reflection by examining all the ways that he thought he was gaining favor with God. Look at the text. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is subtle, but really significant. Paul is throwing serious shade here. Thank you. He's saying if there is anyone, anywhere, at any time, ever, that thinks that they have more going for them before God than I do, then go ahead and step up. Because you're wrong. In the Greek, the words anyone else are emphasized to the point of almost absurdity. Paul is saying there is no one ever that has had anything more going for them before God than Paul does here. Paul is saying, I am more righteous than you. And what he does from here is he outlines five proofs, five hollow treasures that he had tried to obtain to make him righteous before God. So look at the text. Circumcised on the eighth day, Of the people of Israel. The first hollow treasure that we see Paul outlining is his own family heritage. This is something that would only happen if you were in a super strong Jewish family. Paul's parents went at the earliest possible moment that they could to ensure that their son was a part of God's people. So Paul was not adopted into this Jewish family. From the very beginning, he was thick in his Jewish heritage. But he was not just of the people of Israel. He had a significant social status as well. Look at the text. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Social status was the second hollow treasure that he held. And as we go back to the Old Testament, we see that the tribe of Benjamin was extremely significant within the nation of Israel. When the other tribes during the Davidic rule were rebelling against David, it was... The tribe of Benjamin that remained faithful to the Davidic throne. It was the tribe of Benjamin that gave its nation its first king in Saul. His family heritage and social status from the very beginning were everything that you could hope to have to be right before God. Paul had done nothing to achieve these things himself. They were just given to him. But the next three hollow treasures he had actually worked to achieve himself. Let's continue to walk through the text. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. The next hollow treasure that he had worked most of his life to achieve was biblical knowledge. We've got to realize that the perception that we have of Pharisees almost comes with a New Testament lens. We kind of see the Pharisees through Jesus' eyes. But we've got to realize that in this day, the Pharisees were extremely well-respected. 
When you think about people who love the word, who love the law, this, these were the Pharisees. They knew the law backwards and forwards. They meditated on it day and night, just like the word told them to. They loved the law so much that they made up laws to keep them from even coming close to breaking the law. It's commitment. Everything that he did in his life was devoted to the word. But he wasn't just devoted to the word. He put it into practice. We see he had this great zealous religious activity as his next hollow treasure. You see, he was so convinced that he understood what was going on in the law that when he saw others breaking it, he dedicated his life to stamping out that movement to the point of putting those people to death. It's no surprise when you see the first Christian martyr in Acts 7 that Paul is standing right there. The coats of the people who were stoning the first Christian martyr are laid at his feet. He's approving of everything that's going on there. He was completely sold out in his religious activity. And lastly, we see the last hollow treasure that Paul had wrongfully put his faith in was his own moral lifestyle. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is really his own legalistic righteousness. His belief that he followed the rules, that he did things right, that he was faultless, that he was blameless. Remember back to verse 4, he is still challenging us to point out an area of his life that is not perfect. So as we look at the text and we evaluate these hollow treasures, I want to ask you all a question. What do all five of these things have in common? If you notice, every single one of these hollow treasures are good things, aren't they? Do you see it there? It wasn't only bad things keeping Paul from Jesus. It was good things too. A good family, a good reputation, a love for the Bible. These aren't necessarily bad things, but Paul is saying really clearly here, and we miss something incredibly significant if we ignore this, that when good things in our lives become more important to us than the glory of Jesus, then every one of those things are not only sinful, they are in fact worthless. Do you catch the gravity of what's going on here? He's telling us this morning that it is possible to love your family and to take them to church. Possibly just like your parents took you to church. To have a good reputation outside of the walls of these church and in our communities where we live. To have biblical knowledge. To even stand up here and to teach the word. To be zealous in church activity. To be here every single time the doors are open. And even on top of all of that, to be a decent moral person. It is possible to have every single thing on this list going for you in your life. And it be written across all of it at the end of your life, wasted. Imagine for me for a moment that you are hungry. You may actually be hungry. It might not be that hard. 
starving for food. You haven't eaten for days. And you're promised food, but not just food, a feast. And as you sit down to the table, everything is set perfectly. Maybe like the meal that you had during Thanksgiving with your family. A beautiful turkey, all the trimmings and sides, and it's prepared just for you. Now imagine that you dig in and you discover that the turkey and all of the sides are paper mache. Bits of paper glued together and colored to look like food, but are in fact hollow on the inside and worthless for nutrition. It's as though Paul, hungry and starving to obtain right standing before God, and believing that he had already achieved it, finally realizes that the meal he has been feasting on and putting his whole trust in is actually hollow, worthless, and empty. And are we not that different? We view our commitment to our own legalistic rituals as producing in us righteousness when all they are doing is perpetuating our hunger and longing for more rubbish in our lives and producing in us death. What are those things for you? For me, I really relate to the biblical knowledge piece. I love knowing more about God, but a lot of times that doesn't end in love for me. I I love knowledge because knowledge is great. But biblical knowledge that doesn't end in love is worthless. As you're thinking about the hollow feast that you have been consuming, you may be asking yourself, if the table that is set before me is worthless, and I'm here today and I've been convincing myself that I'm full when in fact I am starving and hungry, what am I to do? Thomas Calmer said that the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. But may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. The heart cannot be prevailed upon to part with the world by a simple act of resignation. But may not the heart be prevailed upon to admit into its preference another who shall subordinate the world and bring it down from its wanted ascendancy. Church, this morning, the defeat of sin comes as Christ becomes so beautiful, so supremely worthy in our lives that it makes every other thing in our lives worthless in comparison. This is what happens for Paul. Let's look at the text in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul has just walked through the hollow treasures of his wasted life. And in considering them worthless, needs to communicate very clearly here just how worthless they are to him and how they've become worthless in his life. For Paul, the only word strong enough that he could think of is used in verse 8. Rubbish. This is super uncomfortable. Because it means refuse. 
to continue our illustration of feasting from a moment ago, Paul says that not only are you feasting on worthlessness when good or bad things become more significant than Jesus, he says that you are literally feasting on human waste. And not only are you feasting on that, you are expecting that to produce in you righteousness when in fact all it is doing is filling you inside and out with filth. And Paul can view his sin, his own wasted efforts at producing righteousness in himself this way, simply because we see in the text that he has gained Christ completely. Just as Thomas Calmer spoke about, we find in Jesus the remedy for the hunger and thirst of our souls. You see, I'm convinced by God's word that the solution to overcoming sin is not in working to hate sin enough. No, in fact, there is no amount of hating of sin that you can muster that will prevail in your life against the allure of sin. You need a more significant, more beautiful love. Milton Vincent says it this way. Indeed, as I perpetually feast on Christ and all of his blessings found in the gospel, I find that my hunger for sin diminishes. And the lies of lust simply lose their appeal. Catch this. Hence, to the degree that I am full, I am free. Eyes do not rove, nor do fleshly lusts rule, when the heart is fat with the love of Jesus. We're battling against filling ourselves up with worthless and hollow rubbish. And our plan is to simply starve ourselves further. We do not fill ourselves with the rich, unfading, undefiled, surpassing worth of Jesus. No, we have merely resigned ourselves to not partake of sin, thinking that that will be sufficient in our battle against this overpowering allure of sin in our lives. And we're mistaken. We see that for Paul in this text, the defeat of sin begins with and is sustained by three treasures that are found in Jesus. First, we're going to see in verse 9 how Paul's new identity is the starting place for our battle against sin. Next, we're going to see in verse 10 how the power of Jesus' resurrection ensures the defeat of sin once and for all and empowers us to persevere until the end. Next, we're going to see in the last part of verse 10 that treasuring Jesus supremely empowers us to prevail against sin, even in suffering. So the first treasure, the first treasure that we discover as Jesus becomes our all-surpassing worth is the very righteousness that Paul had so wrongly sought to achieve on his own. In Jesus, we gain the very righteousness of God. A righteousness that completely covers our sin. Look at verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul has already made it very clear that the Judaizers have it wrong. These people who are trying to add a bunch of rules and regulations in order to get to God, they missed it. They missed it because no matter how good you are, your righteousness is not enough. You need, we need 
the righteousness of Christ. Maybe the realization that you need saving from all of the worthless junk that you have spent your life consuming is becoming very real. I think this is the ultimate question that we all have to answer. I think this is, in fact, the ultimate question of the universe. How do we, as sinful people, be made right with a God who is completely holy? All of eternity hinges on this question. And there are all kinds of religious traditions that answer this very question by saying, if you do this and this and this and this and this, you can be made right with God. But this is not at all what Paul is saying. Paul comes on the scene here and he says, there's nothing that you can do. Nothing at all. Your efforts to defeat sin are worthless. Your efforts to produce righteousness in yourself are garbage. It is only God's righteousness that can cover all of our sins. So that at the end of our lives, when God looks upon us, he does not see the filth of our sin. He does not see the empty efforts of our lives that have been spent trying to secure these treasures that might be enough to count for righteousness for us. No, he looks past all of that garbage and sees his son. So what else do we gain in Jesus? Not only do we gain his righteousness as we are found in him, but as we come to know him fully in verse 10, there are two other significant gains for us in Jesus. Let's look at the text. That I may know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The next thing that we gain is the knowledge that God's power is at work in us. His power guarantees our resurrection and the defeat of sin once and for all. The word power here in the Greek is the same word that's used to produce our English word dynamite. God literally comes on the scene and blows up and obliterates our lives and then raises us up from the dead. In the same way that he raised up his son. This is huge for Paul because the power that is at work in Christ's resurrection fuels and guarantees the treasure that he has outlined here will be ours, including our resurrection. This unshakable and power-filled hope is what propels Paul to write about the next treasure that is his in Jesus. Up to this point, I think we're all on board with what Paul is laying out here. The righteousness of God all about it. Power to be raised from the grave? Fantastic. But the next treasure is one that's really hard to get behind. The third treasure is a satisfaction in Jesus that transcends our suffering. As we look at the text, we see that Paul desires to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This may sound crazy, but this is when things really start to get good. When we see Paul saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, we're thinking, Paul, I'm with you. I want to know the power of the resurrection too. 
But then he says, and I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And it's at this point that we think, Paul, whoa. You really had it together until you got to this point, but I don't know that I'm with you anymore. I mean, seriously, raise your hand right now if you would really love some more suffering in your life. It's nobody. But church, this is where the gospel is powerfully at work. In crushing sin and producing in us satisfaction in Jesus. So I want us to unpack this for a second. Paul has already made it really clear that he has written loss over everything. Even the good things the world has to offer, right? Remember that back at the beginning? People, things, biblical knowledge even, loss in comparison to the greatness of Jesus. So let's consider what suffering really is. I want to boil it down to its most basic definition in the simplest terms possible. Suffering is the taking away of the things that this world has to offer us. Suffering is the taking away of our job, our finances, our home. If we were to lose our children or our spouse, that's loss, that's suffering. The loss of our reputation or our esteem among our peers. The loss of our health, our strength, our sight, our hearing. All of these things bring about suffering. Loss is where suffering comes from. However, follow along with me here. If we have written loss over all things, then when God calls us to forfeit some of those things, It is actually not a loss at all because you have already lost them. I don't want to minimize the pain that goes with losing these things. It is a pain that Jesus perfectly understands and relates to and lived as he wept in the Garden of Gethsemane. What I'm talking about this morning is not a superficial joy in the middle of suffering. What Paul is putting forward here is a deep abiding joy in Jesus because when these things are taken away, if you have already written loss over them, this loss drives you deeper into the gain that you have in Christ. Spurgeon prayed this way, Lord, teach me to kiss the waves that throw me into the rock of ages. There is a gain to be had that is unique to the sufferer. There is a depth of grace untapped until the Christian is forced to drink more deeply of the riches of Christ's precious promises. There is for the Christian untold treasure available in the midst of deep and very real suffering. For me and my wife, that's been infertility. It's been... This crazy thing where you go to the doctor and everything is fine. All of my stuff is fine. All of her stuff is fine. And yet, here we are four years into our marriage of trying and we we don't have kids. That's loss. 
But you see, there is a depth of grace that I would have never known had God not granted this to us. A depth of grace in seeing what it means to already have Jesus despite everything else that is going on in your life. A reality that I get to understand my own adoption as a son of the king as we look to adopt a little boy or a little girl. As you are battling sin in the midst of suffering, I promise you, working to hate your sin enough in this time is not going to work for you. But pressing into Jesus will. I promise you, I promise you he is big enough, he is beautiful enough, he is glorious enough to not just give you himself, but to give you in him all things that God has promised us. But suffering is not what we are after. In fact, most inventions and most of the items that we work to accumulate in our lives have as their direct aim the reduction or elimination of suffering and the maximization of our own comfort. I was on Amazon doing a little Black Friday shopping, and did you know that you can buy a couch that has a heated massage pad, a cup holder, a phone charger, compartments to hold your snacks. And if you need those snacks to remain cold, there is a refrigerated compartment in this couch. It'll hold your remote and just about anything else that you can think of. And I do not know why, brothers, we suffered without this last week at the end of our flag football time because that would have been truly clutch. Amen. We have this comfort thing down in America. Who, who thinks of that? It's incredible. And I could have gotten free two-day shipping with my Amazon Prime. It's amazing. But if our goal this morning is to minimize suffering and maximize comfort, I'm convinced there's two very real consequences for us. First, we will never come to the point where we treasure Christ like he deserves to be treasured. Instead, you and I will consider, continue in our insatiable consumption of hollow and worthless treasures. And we will have our minds and our hearts choked by the, pleasure of the pleasures of this world to the point where we will never, ever experience the pleasures that are ours in Jesus. Next, if this is the philosophy for our church, we will never fulfill the Great Commission. It will never happen because we won't risk our families and our finances and our jobs for the sake of making the glory of Christ known in our city and around the world. And how sad it would be in the end to have written over every hollow effort, wasted. So why follow hard after Jesus? Obviously, this is difficult. Paul's in prison. Many of us are suffering. Why risk it? Why can't we just gain Christ, be found in him, know the power of his resurrection, and just kind of hang out there? 
A, I think it's because, as we just talked about, there is a deeper grace for us in the middle of suffering. But B, I think as Paul wraps up this text in 12 through 14, we see that there are two eternal treasures that are ours in Jesus as well. And we need to persevere to the end to make them ours. Look with me in 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here we see a picture that we have really got to get our arms around. And Tozer has some very strong words for us that I think really drive this point home. In the church today, everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ. And we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. Christ can be received without creating any special love for him in the soul of the receiver. The man is saved, but he is not hungry or thirsty after God. In fact, he is specifically taught to be satisfied and encouraged to be content with very little. We have been snared into the coils of a spurious logic which insists that if we had found him, we no longer must seek him. But friends, come near this morning to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. Prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. I think there are many of us in this room whose Christianity is slowed to a stall at best. And the idea of seeking with obsessive passion after Christ is nowhere evident in our lives. How do we make these eternal treasures ours? Look at the text. Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Literally, the text says, that for which Christ has seized me, caught me. Some translations even say arrested me. If you look at Acts 9, Paul's conversion, he was seized. He was arrested by the love of God. Brothers and sisters, the fundamental reason why we follow hard after Christ and we press into every last bit of what we've been talking about today is because he has sought hard after us. He has pursued us with his passion and allured us with his grace. And there is no other thing in this life that makes sense for us than to run after him. I pray that we would never forget the magnitude of the fact that he has called our names. We run hard for this prize because he's gained us with his love. There is more for us here though. As we press deeply into Christ, as we increasingly make these treasures our own, it develops in Paul and in us a single-minded discipline that governs every area of our life. When Paul gets to the middle of verse 13, he says, but one thing I do. Our translations really kind of miss what's really going on here. The words I do are implied, but they're not actually there in the original language of the New Testament. 
in English, they help us understand what Paul's saying, but they miss the significance of what's really happening. Here, Paul literally says, but one thing, and he stops. It's abrupt. You feel it. One thing. One thing captivates me, he says. Just one thing. An eternal reward. In the text we see, forgetting what is behind, Paul strains toward that what is ahead that which is ahead, pressing on toward the goal. What's the goal? The goal is to win the prize. What's the prize? He said, that for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The prize of our salvation is also its purpose. God has called us to salvation for our salvation. I'm convinced on this text and others in the New Testament that there are two eternal treasures that Paul is outlining for us here. The first is undoubtedly the thing that is driving Paul here. He wants to be completely and finally united with Jesus. He is longing for the day when he will be in Christ completely and perfectly. However, what's interesting is when you start to look at the word prize, the prize for which God has called me, and you look at how Paul is using this in other places in the New Testament, you find something really interesting. When you do that, you'll discover the second treasure. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians 9, you don't have to do that. If you want to, you can. You'll see that he's using this same imagery as, as of a race again. Listen to this. He says, do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? This is 9.24, run in such a way that you'll get the prize. What prize is he talking about here? Listen to what he says just before this. Paul says that I am free and I belong to no man, but I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And he goes on talking about this and he says to the Jew, I become like a Jew in order to win some. And as he ends this paragraph, he says, To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 9 is the second prize of running after Jesus is taking others with us and introducing them to this treasure as well. The second prize is the grace of getting to take others along with us and having them share in this eternal prize with us. Here Paul is saying, I don't want to be disqualified when I get to the end of my life and I have consumed all of these treasures for myself and I have given none of them away. Here we see Paul has eternity in mind as he looks at every other man and as he looks at his own life. If part of the prize is feasting on Christ and finding in him an eternal treasure chest of holy joy, would the point of being given such an all-surpassing worthy treasure be to keep it all, hoard it all for ourselves? Paul says no. Look at Philippians 4. My brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. The people that he's pouring his life into, they are his joy they are his crown. They are jewels in his crown. They are part of his eternal treasure. Continue on in his letters to the Thessalonians. We see in 2 Thessalonians 2, the first part of the prize, the completion of his salvation. 
But when you go back to 1 Thessalonians 2, you'll see in 19 and 20 the very same reality that's going on in Philippians 4. The prize of Paul's salvation was being completely, finally, fully with Jesus. But it was taking others there with him too. So could it be this morning that the prize that we long for is not just the completion of our own salvation, the feasting on of Christ here and for all eternity, but is also the marriage supper of the Lamb, shared among people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people? Could it be that our lives were intended from the beginning to be lived with the eternity of others in mind? So that one day when you and I stand before God, we can look to either side of us and be in the company of those that we have laid our lives down for so that they might one day be complete in Christ as well. They are giving glory to Christ as well. Is this not the picture that all of history is moving toward? In Revelation 19, we see... The author hears what seems to be the voice of a great multitude. I pray among those voices are those that I know in my life that are lost. That God might make their dead hearts alive. And like the roar of many waters and the sound of peals of thunder. We would all cry out together. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. John Piper once said that the best news of the Christian gospel Don't miss this. The best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we might find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. Might I add this morning that sharing His infinite beauty. So that for all eternity we might revel in this prize together. Let's pray. God, I... I pray that we would not get over for one second the reality that you have called our names. That you have rescued us from hell. That you have done something that we could never do on our own. So God, I pray as David does in the Psalms that we would extol you in this time our God and our King, and bless your name forever. That we would bless you and praise your name forever and ever. For you are great and greatly to be praised and your greatness is unsearchable. God, that we would meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, on all of your wondrous works. 
that we would speak of the mighty and awesome deeds of your hand and declare your greatness. That your fame would pour forth in this time. The fame of your abundant goodness ringing loud among your people in this time. Because God, you are powerful to save the sinner and raise the dead to life. So as we worship, God, I pray that you would convict us of sin. For trying to obtain righteousness on our own. For trying to hate sin enough in our own power. And God that you would overwhelm us and overcome us with your beauty and your grace. Because there is freedom here today. To confess sin. To repent of sin. And to be free and full in Jesus. Who God meet with us in this time we pray. Amen.